Welcome to Module 17 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forces. We've begun our focus on what are known as substantive errors in judicial review. Recall our focus here is on the what of the decision. When can that what be challenged in the course of our four-step approach to the control of the exercise of delegated power? In the last module, I noted that substantive grounds for review existed and were tied to the idea that the delegate must stay within its piece of the power pie, that it must not overflow the bucket of its powers, to use my other analogy. That is, the bucket of powers that has been given to it by Parliament, typically through a statute, sometimes indirectly via statute and then through supplemental regulations. Remember, Judicial review is basically about making sure that the executive does not exceed the powers that it has in law. It is, recall, a subordinate body, not a supreme one. It is not parliament. It does not enjoy supremacy. Judicial review, or if it exists some form of statutory appeal, is what you do if the delegate has no good answer to the show me the power mantra. Again, that's why we refer to that portion of our seven steps as the control of the exercise of delegated power to ensure that the delegate does not exceed its remit, its subordinate status in Canadian public law. Otherwise, we've abandoned both parliamentary supremacy and the doctrine of the rule of law. But you cannot simply shoot from the hip and say, hey, the delegate didn't read the statute right. Quashed the decision on judicial review. Yay, I've won. Instead, you need to ask other questions first, because in this area of judicial review, as opposed to procedural entitlements, in this area, substantive grounds, the analysis is greatly complicated by concerns about deference. That is, should the courts show deference or generosity to the delegate expressed through what is known as the standard of review? Put simply, the question becomes, under the standard review test, how bad must the substantive error be before the court intervenes? Now, it's probably useful at this point to refresh your memory as to what we mean by a substantive error constituting a substantive ground of review. We focused, obviously, on procedural grounds of review. So what's a substantive ground of review? Well, over the era, the substantive grounds of review have been packaged differently, reflecting the jurisprudence and case law of that particular era. I've always found it useful just to subdivide the universe of substantive errors into three. Error of law, that is a misconstrual of the law. Error of fact, a misconstrual of the fact. And then abuse of discretion or an error of discretion. The sort of scenario we saw when we were discussing Ron Corelli versus Duplessis at the beginning of this course, that is the exercise of a choice permitted by a statute, but the choice is exercised in a manner that is in some respect improper. And so classically, we would talk about a choice being made, a discretion being exercised for bad faith or under the impulse of a discriminatory motivation or for an improper purpose or for an irrelevant purpose. That is a purpose that was extraneous to the purpose for which the power existed. So think Ron Corelli versus Duplessis, exercising a power under the Liquor Commissions Act for the purpose of punishing Mr. Ron Corelli for his posting bail of Jehovah Witnesses. That would be the exercise of a power for a purpose extraneous to that for which the power exists in the first place. These were called the old nominate categories of abuse or error of discretion. 
As we'll see, the distinction between error of law, error of fact, abuse of discretion begins to evaporate over the course of the history of what's known as the standard review test. And by the time we get to the case in Vavilov, it's no longer really all that useful to think about these substantive errors as being subdivided into different universes. I'll make one other point about substantive review. You will see regularly in the jurisprudence, especially the earlier jurisprudence, discussions of errors that are jurisdictional in nature, errors of jurisdiction, as if this was some separate and distinct error. Well, for reasons that we'll see when we talk about standard of review, the courts wished to distinguish between errors that were so bad they could be said to deprive the delegate of their jurisdiction versus those that were, well, they were wrong, perhaps, or they were incorrect or unwise, but they didn't rob the delegate of its jurisdiction. And so that distinction, that jurisdictional distinction, became important in conversations under the standard of review test. And so we talked about errors being jurisdictional in nature. Again, that's no longer an important concept in modern standard of review case law, although it does have a faint echo. And again, we'll get to that when we discuss the Vavilov case. All of this is a rather long way of saying don't worry too much about these distinctions between different sorts of substantive review. They are important historically. And indeed, I would have said that up until 2019 in the Vavilov case, the nature of the question, that is, error of law, error of fact, or an error or abuse of discretion, was the place you would start in conducting a new and fresh standard review analysis because of something that I label the Dunsmere defaults. But we'll get to that. Let's circle back then to talk about what it is that the standard of review test is really all about. So in addressing any allegation that a delegate has made a substantive error, you need to resolve, in essence, two questions. First, when will the court show deference? And second, what does deference mean in practice? And the case law of the Supreme Court has offered different answers to these questions over the course of the last 50 years or so. It keeps changing its standard review test. And that means old case law is usually now bad case law. And you will stumble badly if you rely on case law from the wrong era. So before we get to the current approach to standard of review on substantive grounds, it is useful to very briefly give you the highlights, often in my view the lowlights, of this endless struggle to define the standard of review. And so in this module, we skate through a brief history of standard of review in Canadian jurisprudence. And we need to start with two concepts, privative clause and curial deference. And so first, privative clause. What is a privative clause, sometimes called a preclusive clause? Well, remember, as I've just said, judicial review is about courts policing the exercise of power by the delegate to make sure the delegate remains within its piece of the power pie or does not overflow that bucket of powers. Imagine that you're the legislature and you've created this complicated administrative apparatus to deal with a particular social ill or issue. And let's say you've created an enormous administrative apparatus to deal with, well, labor arbitration. So now you have this complicated system of labor arbitration, in part so though those sorts of labor disputes don't get bogged down in expensive and lengthy court action. But every time you have an arbiter under this administrative arrangement making a decision, in the arbitration system, the losing party runs to the court to judicially review the arbitrator's decision. Your whole purpose as a legislature to have an efficient administrative system for labor arbitration has been sidestepped by the courts. It's defeated. Now everything gets bogged down in court once again. And moreover, you've got these 
Joker courts who were very jealous of their reviewing role, saying that everything is an error that knocks the arbitrator out of its piece of the power pie, and the arbiter is without jurisdiction, and therefore the court can intervene and provide a remedy on judicial review. Well, if you're a legislature and you see all this happening, what might you be tempted to do? You might be tempted to introduce into the legislation creating this labor arbitration system something called a privative clause. And more concretely, the legislature may attempt to avoid or restrict judicial review by inserting a privative clause in the delegates constituting statute. What's the privative clause say? Well, it's simply a statutory provision whose intended effect is to make the delegate's decision final and binding and prevent any review of the delegate's decisions by the court. And why do the legislatures want them? Well, again, to summarize some points that I've alluded to. First, legislatures hope to reduce the prospect that protracted delays will frustrate the purpose of the administrative scheme. And second, the course of litigation in court is often very expensive, and perhaps the legislature wishes a more expeditious and more inexpensive means of remedying disputes in society. And third, administrative delegates sometimes have been created for the very purpose of keeping the dispute out of the courts because they have more expertise on the particular subject matter of whatever social ill that the legislature intends to cure or address. So the legislatures have some pretty good reasons for shutting courts out of the picture. And legislatures have tried hard, in some instances, to do so. Here's an example of a strong privative clause drawn from the Ontario Labor Relations Act. No decision, order, direction, declaration, or ruling of the board shall be questioned or reviewed in any court, and no order shall be made or process entered or proceeding taken in any court, whether by, and then there's a list of remedies. And the remedies are the ones associated with judicial review. And so go away, courts, get lost. That's what the Labor Relations Act is saying. Is that the way it works? Shouldn't the answer to that question necessarily be, yes, of course, Parliament or the provincial legislature, as the case may be, is sovereign. And so the courts should enforce the intent and not allow judicial review because of this privative clause. Well, it won't surprise you to learn that that's not the way things have played out. Privative clauses have not been successful in insulating delegates from judicial review. The courts have reasserted their powers as superior courts to review decisions of delegates where delegates have exceeded, and the classic expression is, their jurisdiction, or as I put it, outside their piece of the power pie or overflown the bucket of powers the legislature has bestowed upon them. Well, how do courts justify this position, this resistance to the absolute constraints that some privative clauses at least seek to impose on the judicial review function? They've relied on a bit of a technicality, at least initially. Legislatures, when they refer to orders of delegates being final and binding, etc., etc., they mean a valid decision. Those orders are final and binding. And if the delegate's outside their jurisdiction, then the delegate has no legal power to make a decision at all. And so the decision isn't valid, it's null and void. Justice Dixon put it this way in a case called Jackman in 1978. It is hard to believe that a legislature would create a tribunal with a limited jurisdiction and yet bestow upon such tribunal, by shielding it from judicial review via a privative clause, an unlimited power to determine the extent of its jurisdiction. And recall also there's a constitutional dimension to this discussion. Remember at the beginning of the course I said that courts had found a constitutional basis for judicial review, and this constitutional basis stands in the way of privative clauses being absolute. 
Specifically, the Supreme Court has looked to Section 96 of the Constitution Act of 1867, which looks like an appointment power for the federal government to appoint judges of provincial superior courts. But more than that, the Supreme Court has said that it protects a zone of jurisdiction for the superior courts. And by the time you get to a case like Dunsmuir in 2008, the Supreme Court is even more emphatic. By virtue of the rule of law principle, all exercises of public authority must find their source in law. All decision-making powers have legal limits derived from the enabling statute itself, the common or civil law, or the Constitution. That's all familiar to you now. Judicial review is the means by which the courts supervise those exercising statutory powers to ensure that they do not overstep their legal authority. Again, uh, I would put it to make sure they don't step outside their piece of the power pie or overflow that bucket. The court goes on, thus, when a reviewing court considers the scope of a decision-making power or the jurisdiction conferred by a statute, the standard of review analysis strives to determine what authority was intended to be given to that body in relation to the subject matter. This is done within the context of the court's constitutional duty to ensure that public authorities do not overreach their lawful powers. And so it's a constitutional obligation on the courts to police the executive, to consider the powers exercised by the delegate to ensure that it's not exceeded the scope of its piece of the power pie or overflowed the bucket of powers that parliament has delegated to it. That's a constitutional obligation that cannot be denied by a privative clause. On the other hand, we can't ignore privative clauses. They should have some significance. Parliament has expressed its view, or the legislature of the province has expressed its view. Surely we should pay heed to those expressions in the statute itself. And so while the privative clause on its face does not operate as intended, that is, to preclude the presence of judicial review, it does prompt the courts to exercise prudence in terms of the circumstances in which they will judicially review a decision of the delegate. They will extend, because of the existence of the privative clause, an element of deference, forgiveness in relation to the decision made by the delegate. So that's our first concept and the first justification articulated by the courts in a move by the 1980s towards deference in terms of substantive judicial review. This deference is called curial deference. Curial deference. Curial refers to courts. Deference in this context simply means an attentiveness to the decision made by the delegate. Heed paid to that decision, not a rush to judgment, a rush to intervene, rather certain tenderness, a forgiveness, if you will, in relation to the decision made by the delegate. Courts have been willing to show deference in relation to the fact-finding made by delegates. The the delegates are often in a better position than the courts on judicial review to decide what the facts of a case are. And by the 1980s, they were also extending deference in relation to alleged errors of law. That is, allegations that the delegate has misconstrued some legal principle, often a legal principle the delegate is obliged to apply by virtue of its own governing statute. Deference towards these findings of law, these conclusions on law, is a feature of curial deference by the 1980s. And one of the reasons beyond privative clauses why this deference is extended in the 1980s to delegates is a growing appreciation by the courts that, in fact, the delegates may have a comparative expertise on these specialized areas of law relative to the courts themselves. The courts are generalists. They are not specialists. The delegates, on the other hand, do nothing but apply these idiosyncratic areas of the law. And you see that 
curial deference motivated by concerns about relative expertise emerging in cases like corn growers from the Supreme Court. Okay, so we have two drivers, at least initially, for this concern about deference. We have this concern about privative clauses where the legislature has spoken. We have this concern about relative expertise. And so what happens? Well, you need a test. You need a test to decide where you owe deference as a reviewing court and what that deference really means in practice. It's not enough simply to say you owe deference in certain circumstances yet to be decided and will decide uh, on an ad hoc basis. It'd be useful to have some sort of formula or test that allows you to decide. And so we're going to talk about two tests, now historic tests, although one bleeds into the other. The first is test number one, the pragmatic and functional test dating, well, really from 1988 and the Supreme Court's decision in a case called Bebo. And by this point in 1988, the Supreme Court is concerned with discerning the intent of the legislature. It concocts a test that purportedly unearths the intent of the legislature in terms of deciding this question, how much deference do we owe? The legislature will tell us and will determine the answer by applying this magic test in Bebo, the pragmatic and functional test, and it will spit out an answer on the question of how much deference. And so under Bebo, there were four prongs to this test. We're not going to wax on them at great length. They're no longer relevant. And I want to underscore that there is a strong propensity in the history of jurisprudence in the area of standard reviews of people continuing to recycle old tests in new guises. My view, and others may disagree, but my view and the view that I'm going to share in this module and in the course of my class is that the Bebo pragmatic and functional test has now had a stake driven through it definitively. I thought the stake was driven through it definitively in Dunsmuir in 2008. I am now beyond question convinced that the stake was driven through it by Vavilov in 2019. So this is entirely for historic interest. The first prong of the test, the wording of the enactment conferring jurisdiction on the administrative tribunal. You look at the wording. For example, is there a pivotive clause? Second, the purpose of the statute creating the tribunal and the reason for its existence. Third, the area of expertise of its members and four, the nature of the problem before the tribunal. So questions of law, questions of fact, mixed questions of fact and law. So once you had these four prongs and you looked at the various elements that fed into them, you would spit out an answer as to how much deference. And originally, there were two possibilities. You would apply this four-prong test, and there was the possibility of standard review on a correctness basis, and there was the possibility of standard review on a patently unreasonable basis. And correctness meant, is the decision right in its understanding of the law? In other words, no deference. And patent unreasonableness meant, is the decision clearly irrational in the understanding of the law? In other words, maximum deference. And so with correctness, the court would simply intervene where it concluded that the delegate got it wrong. With patent unreasonableness, the delegate would only intervene if persuaded that the decision was clearly irrational. And only then would intervention be justified on judicial review. An analogy that one of my colleagues, Jamie Benedictson, concocted, and I think is a very good one, is an image of a dartboard. And so imagine the delegate is throwing darts on a correctness standard in order to stave off judicial review, the delegate would have to hit the bullseye in its understanding of the law. On a patent on reasonableness standard, well, frankly, the delegate would have to be completely off the, the dartboard and probably sticking its dart into that fake wood veneer upon which you've hung that dartboard. Now, that's at least in theory a workable system. 
the pragmatic and functional test. It's got four prongs. It leads to two possible conclusions. The problem, of course, is that the prongs in the pragmatic and functional approach can point in different directions, at which point you have to ask the question, well, if they're pointing in different directions, which of the standards of review do I choose? And so it's not much of an algorithm. Again, it's more of masked subjectivity in my view. But it got even more complicated. By the late 1990s, the Supreme Court had extended this pragmatic and functional approach to other substantive errors above and beyond alleged errors of law. And so you would use the pragmatic and functional approach to calculate the standard review in relation to the whole gamut of possible substantive errors. And I think, again, and I've said this repeatedly, those boil down to error of fact, error of law, and abuse of discretion. People have variations on that, mixed fact and law, policy, etc. But I think a tripartite understanding, error of fact, error of law, and abuse of discretion works perfectly fine. The other thing that happened is the Supreme Court decided that two possible outcomes to the pragmatic and functional approach was not enough. Remember, we had started with correctness or patent unreasonableness. By the late 1990s, the Supreme Court concluded there had to be an intermediate standard of review that lay between correctness and patent unreasonableness that the Supreme Court called reasonableness simpliciter. And Wags would say whenever the Supreme Court describes one of its tests using a Latin expression, it's because no one really understands what it means. And in fact, reasonable simpliciter was very poorly understood in the jurisprudence. Basically, it was explained like this. Correctness, is the decision right? Patently unreasonable, is the decision clearly irrational? Reasonableness simpliciter, is the error discernible after some digging? What does that mean in practice? Good question. It meant different things in different hands, to the point that by 2003, Justice LaBelle, concurring in a decision called Toronto City, went out of his way to raise the criticism directed at the pragmatic and functional approach, basically saying it was neither pragmatic nor functional. Why? Because there is a perceived lack of clarity in the area. And he cited a decision from Justice Barry from the Newfoundland court, a case called Miller, in attempting to follow the court's distinctions between patently unreasonable, reasonable, and correct, one feels at time as though one is watching a juggler juggle three transparent objects. Depending on the way the light falls, sometimes one thinks one can see the objects, other times one cannot, and indeed wonders whether there are really three distinct objects there at all. Now that's a pretty stark condemnation of a test that's supposed to guide judicial review in an area of the law, administrative law, which has a discernible impact on a huge number of people. Administrative law, recall, is supposed to be the law of government accountability. And uncertainty of this sort risks rendering administrative law something close to the law of government impunity. And so the Supreme Court does a reset. And that brings us to test number two, the Dunsmuir decision of 2008. And there, the Supreme Court acknowledges, frankly, the difficulties with the pragmatic and functional approach, and especially the inability to distinguish in practice between patently unreasonable and reasonableness simpliciter as standards of review. And so the court in Dunsmuir abandons the tripartite standard of review approach. It simply says, here on after, we're going to have two standards, we're going to have correctness, and we're going to have reasonableness. And that dualism, correctness and reasonableness, remains the current approach albeit now with a greater understanding of what we mean by reasonableness, and we'll come to that in a future module. But how do you decide which standard to apply? In other words, what's your test? Are we going to stick with the pragmatic and functional approach? Well, in Dunsmuir, the court suggests 
no, not really, although it opens the door crack to a resuscitation of the pragmatic and functional approach very unhelpfully in my view. Now, different people have different views about what Dunsmuir really meant. My view is that in Dunsmuir, the Supreme Court signaled that from here on after, the approach to be applied in deciding what standard of review was to apply what I called a series of defaults, default presumptions. So while the Supreme Court talks about privative clauses in Dunsmuir, it doesn't really talk about the implications of privative clauses. It doesn't view the privative clauses as determinative. Instead, there are a series of expectations that are baked into the test. And those defaults really hinged on the nature of the alleged error. If it were an alleged error fact or an alleged abuse of discretion, then the default expectation was reasonableness as a standard of review. When it was an error of law that was being alleged, well, yes, generally you would apply a standard of reasonableness. Now, the court said relatively little about what it meant by reasonableness. It did say that reasonableness is the existence of justification, transparency, and intelligibility within the decision-making process, and also that reasonableness was concerned with whether the decision falls within a range of possible acceptable outcomes, which are defensible in respect of the facts and the law. How that was to be applied wasn't so clear. And we had to wait till 2019 and the next reset in Vavilov to garner a greater understanding of what was intended by this concept of reasonableness. Now, to say that an error of law would be generally reviewed on a reasonableness standard is not to say that in every instance, reasonableness would apply. There were certain errors of law that the Supreme Court identified in Dunsmuir as attracting a correctness standard. And so the exceptions included something the court called a question of law of central importance to the legal system and outside the specialized area of expertise of the delegate. There you would apply correctness. You would also apply correctness to something the court called true questions of jurisdiction. And you would apply correctness to questions of constitutional law. Now, with time, the Supreme Court added both further caveats on those exemptions and also further details about when they applied. Bottom line, it was comparatively uncommon to find instances where matters were of central importance to the Canadian legal system and outside the specialized expertise of the tribunal. And it was even more uncommon for the court to conclude that a matter was a true question of jurisdiction, which the court ultimately determined to be a question of law in which the demarcation between the respective roles of two or more tribunals was at issue, who had jurisdiction over a particular subject matter, for example. And then in relation to constitutional questions, the Supreme Court added nuance in a case called Dore, which provides a very complicated distinction between what I call the application of the Constitution to determine whether a given statutory provision is constitutional or not versus the application of the Charter to decide whether the exercise of discretion by a decision maker is compliant with the Charter or not. Don't worry, we'll come back to Dore, and so we're going to have to do a separate discussion of it. But even with these qualifiers, the Dunsmuir test provided an element of certainty if you treated it as creating a set of defaults and you would default to the defaults, and that would answer the question, well, what standard of review do you really apply? It left open the question really of what reasonableness meant in practice. We'll come back to that. But at the very least, you knew you generally had to apply the reasonableness standard. However, in Dunsmuir, the Supreme Court did suggest that some sort of contextual test of the sort that we saw with the pragmatic and functional approach with its many variables, might still apply, although it was very unclear as to how that 
contextual test was to interface with the defaults. Thereafter, the Supreme Court largely abandoned the four prongs of the pragmatic and functional approach, but every once in a while, it would evoke the contextual approach unpredictably in order to decide what the standard of review would be. And there was this fraught debate as to whether there should be a contextual approach that bolstered Dunsmuir or not. And by the time we get to 2019, Dunsmuir is as encrusted with uncertainty as was the old pragmatic and functional approach prior to Dunsmuir itself. And so, once again, there's a need for a reset. And that reset comes in 2019 in a case called Vavilov. And so our task next is to understand what Vavilov did and what it did not do, matters to which we turn in the next module. This ends module 17.